Well, good morning once again. If you would, you may be seated. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy. See, I'm not saying Matthew anymore, so I'm getting into the habit of saying the right book this time. 1 Timothy, we're in chapter 1. Ramey uh, did a great job reading the, the passage this morning and in, also in, in terms of reading a corresponding passage from 1 John. But I think before we dive in this morning, I think it would behoove us just to back up a little bit and see the preceding verse before we jump in. Um, so I want to, before we get going, I want to just back it up to verse 3 and read verses 3 down to 5. And then we'll pray and we'll ask for the Father's help and, uh, and then we'll get to work. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus in order that you may charge or command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, if you notice, he said in verse 3 that you may charge people not to teach, that you may silence people, that you may command them to be silent. And then in verse 5, the aim, the goal of our charge, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's ask God to help us. God, we pray this morning that as we look at your word, there, is, there are, Lord, a number of terms that are packed into this single verse. The aim and the goal of all faithful biblical teaching, obviously, is love. But what does that look like? What are the other foundations from which a true love springs, Lord? We see these, these terms that are presented to us this morning by the Apostle Paul. Uh, terms like a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. And we want you to help us to understand, Lord, just exactly what it is that you're saying to us. Open our minds, we ask, Lord, to hear what it is your word is saying to us. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would illuminate the text on the page before us and that you would bring understanding to your people, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would recalibrate our conscience and that you would reassure us of a new heart in order that we may love, Lord, as you have called us to. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the miracles of modern medicine that is given to us by the grace of God is the capacity to perform heart transplants. Uh, coronary failure is a very common thing, and uh, up until recent modern medical history, there was nothing that could be done if you began to experience heart failure. But modern medicine has brought to us the amazing miracle and the gift of heart transplant surgery. Uh, the first individual to attempt something like this is a bit of a mad scientist, an individual by the name of James Hardy. He had the consent of his patient to attempt a heart transplant in order to save his patient's life. But the problem was he didn't have a human heart to put in there. And so the first attempted heart surgery, heart transplant type surgery, was conducted by Dr. Hardy of the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Uh, He was working on a dying fellow by the name of Boyd Rush, and his efforts started with trying to implant a chimpanzee heart into Mr. Rush. And so he did. 
early on the morning of January 24, 1964. Mr. Rush lived for approximately 90 minutes following the transplant of that very first heart in 1964. But really, the individual who is credited with the first successful heart surgery, um, you might call Mr. Mr. Bush's surgery something of a success. He did live following it, but just not for very long. But what is considered to be the first world's first human-to-human heart transplant that was successful was performed by a South African cardiac surgeon by the name of Christian Bernard in 1967. And that year, in 1967 and 1968 in particular, following, uh, there was great success with the transplant of hearts in individuals who needed new hearts. Undoubtedly, as uh, many of us age and grow older, some of us in this room undoubtedly will experience later on in our lives some degree of coronary heart failure. When you transplant a heart into a new patient, there are certain things that you have to take into consideration, the most important of which is this. The body naturally rejects the new heart. Because it has different uh, DNA, it comes from a different person, the body recognizes the heart as a foreign invading tissue, and immediately the body's autoimmune system will kick into overdrive and will try to attack the heart and to kill the heart. So one of the things that has to be done right off the bat is uh, significant what they call immunosuppressants, autoimmune suppressant type drugs, have to be given to the patient in order to hold back their immune system so that their body will not attack the heart. And beyond all of this, there are other things which you have to do. You have to exercise. You have to eat carefully. Uh, There are a number of things you can do which will endanger the uh, viability and the vitality of your heart. You say, well, that's all really interesting, Pastor Josh, but we're here talking about the Bible. What does any of this have to do with Scripture and what it is that God is trying to say to us this morning? I take my metaphor from the book of Ezekiel in which God says through the prophet of Ezekiel, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart. And so we see there that one of the things that Jesus is doing for us by dying on the cross in order to forgive us of our sins, in order to make atonement for us, The thing, in fact, that he is doing for us is he is trying, he is succeeding in giving us a new heart. By placing our faith in Christ and what he did for us on the cross, we are transformed. There is a new heart that is given to us. We are saved by faith as a result of the grace that God gives us by sending his son, Jesus, to die on the cross. There's no doubt we have all, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, received a spiritual heart transplant. But the question now that we have to ask, are we being good to our new heart? Are we nurturing that new heart? Or are we sitting on the spiritual couch, as it were, eating lots of fatty foods high in cholesterol and doing all of the things that doctors tell you you can't do once you've been given a new heart? Let me pose the question to you specifically here today. As you are here, a believer in Jesus Christ, knowing that you have been transformed by the cross, are you living in the light of that truth? Are you loving as God intends for you to love? That is the question that Paul is dealing with here 
in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He makes this statement right out of the gate. There's no appreciation. There's no, hey, Timothy, I thank God for you because you do X, Y, Z. In all of his other letters, Paul is careful to point out all the positives before he begins to get to the instruction, before he begins to give a specific concrete uh, teaching in terms of what he wants to happen. Here in 1 Timothy, there's none of that. There's no thanksgiving. He just jumps right in. He says, here's the deal, Timothy. You stay at Ephesus. And the reason you stay at Ephesus is because you have a job to do, and your job is to charge, that is, command certain people not to teach different doctrine. The reason for the teaching of that different doctrine, the reason why that is so dangerous is because it weakens faith. It promotes speculation rather than the faith that is to be in God. So you charge them not to teach different doctrine, which begs the question, if I am to command these false teachers not to teach falsehood, then what is the goal or what is the command or the charge or the end of my own teaching? And Paul answers that question in verse 5. The aim of our charge. He uses the same word there as he used in verse 3. He said, you charge them not to teach a different doctrine. The aim of our charge, that is the true command that we have been given from God the Father, the true charge is this, that people will love. That is the goal. And he's very specific about that. In verse 5, he says, the aim, Greek word there, telos, that is the goal or the end in view, the destination to which we are to be striving in our preaching and in our teaching, the goal is love. Which then leads to another interesting question. In light of all of the cultural transformations that are taking place all around us, in light of recent developments, even within our public education system, the rise of soji and the demand for sexual freedom in whatever capacity it is craved or wanted, what constitutes biblical love? You see, the world is hammering on an idea of love, which if we come to the scriptures, we don't find that the world's idea of love is anything like scripture's idea of love. We find that what the world thinks is necessary to find fulfillment, this sexual gratification, this pursuit of sexual pleasure in whatever perversion or form it may take, Jesus is saying that there is something entirely different that God has in view. The goal of our charge, the the aim of our preaching, the destination which we want to be going is towards love, But we are surrounded by people who have no idea what that is. And if we live in a society that is really rather clueless about what real love is, sometimes that can influence us so that we are not really sure of what it means to love. And so Paul clarifies for us in this verse, we are not loving if the action of our love does not come from three things. And he mentions them very specifically. Number one, he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. Number one, a pure heart. He goes on, number two, and a good conscience. Number three, and a sincere faith. So although there are lots of things which the world calls love, and although there are lots of feelings and emotions which the world sometimes will equate with love, we find here the teaching of Scripture is this. True love, biblical love, godly love, 
isn't love unless it comes from, there has to be three things that serve as the foundation of this love. It's not true love. It's not biblical love. If, number one, it doesn't come from a pure heart, it is not true love. It is not biblical love. It is not God-honoring love. If, number two, it does not come from a good conscience. The word, the adjective good there is speaking in terms of qualitatively the kind of conscience we have. Not merely a clear conscience, but a good conscience. And number three, it is not true love. It is not biblical love. It does not meet with God's definition of love if it does not spring from a sincere or an authentic faith. That is a faith that is without hypocrisy. And so that's what we're going to look at today. The first thing that Paul says here, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of true biblical preaching is love that springs from a pure heart. Both the Old Testament and New Testament are very careful to identify the heart as the center of a person. The center of a person's soul, the center of all that a person is, is their heart. Um, It's the place from which the emotions come. It's the place from which the will is exercised, from which decisions are made. Those things which you desire are found within your heart. And how you choose to live your life, the choices you make, the decisions you undertake, the path you follow, all of this comes from within the heart. Now, I am going to quote to you, this is a little bit of a different message because I want to be careful to biblically define these terms. And so normally I'll give you one or two cross-references. Today, we've got at least a dozen scriptures that are going to come. So don't necessarily turn there because I'm not sure you're going to be able to keep up. I've got the notes. We'll put this up on the website later in the week. Just try to jot it down and listen, okay? And I really appreciate it. Let me just say this. I love it when I say in such and such passage, and I hear you guys flipping. I love that. But we just, I don't think we're going to be able to get through all of this, and I don't think you're going to be able to keep up. So just today, pastor's giving you permission not to turn in your Bible to certain passages. I never say that, but just for today, it's okay, all right? So I'll just give it to you today. Number one, heart. Let us make sure that we understand what it is that the scriptures are saying about the heart and how it is that the Bible defines the heart. Number one, verse Romans chapter one, verse 24, the Bible makes it very clear that the heart is the source of the emotions and the passions. The apostle Paul writing in Romans chapter one talks about fallen humanity and how fallen humanity has sinned against God and gone astray from God. And it makes the statement that God, in chapter 1, verse 24 of Romans, God has given them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. You notice that expression, lusts of their hearts. So this is the word heart being used in a particular context that helps us to understand what the scriptures mean when they say heart. Here, Paul's saying the lusts of their hearts, that is the things that they want, the things that they are striving after, the things that they are craving. So a heart is a source of desire. It is a source of emotion. Okay, or passion, number one. Number two, we also find that it is biblically defined the source of decision-making. You always want whatever it is that you want most. If the thing you want most in life is to have a house, if that's what you want, if that is the passion or the desire, the thing that you're craving most, then the decisions that you make will follow after that passion. You will save your money. You will set it aside in a bank account. You will save up that initial down payment. You will begin searching for properties. All of these actions and activities that you undertake, that you choose to do, flow from 
the desire you have to have a house, okay? And Paul makes that very clear. Within the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 17, and this is entirely fitting because it is Thanksgiving, Paul says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Obedient from the heart. Now, to obey is to know what it is that God wants you to do, what type of activity it is he wants you to follow, and then to choose to undertake that. And Paul is clearly associating that choice of obedience with an activity that has happened within the heart. And so as we're looking at this passage here in 1 Timothy, it is very important that what Paul is saying is that the center of your person, the center of who you are, at the core of your being is your heart, and the heart, we may also label it, if we want, as your soul or your spirit, but the scriptures predominantly use the term heart to describe that, that sort of um, intangible thing that is at the center of who you are. Heart is the term that is used, and we find that at the center of that is certain desires and certain choices, or we could say passions and will. Okay, so that is what Paul is saying. He is saying that love, the goal of biblical preaching, is love that springs from your heart, but then he qualifies it, and he says that springs from, if you look in verse 5, a pure heart. Paul's statement here is that biblical love isn't biblical if the heart that is desiring and willing to do certain things is not first purified. Now, at its core, what Paul is saying is that if we are still chasing after the things of this world, if we are still chasing after sinful desires and sinful passions, then we do not have a pure heart. And what that means is that any action we undertake that the world might call love is not loving if at the heart of the motivation for that action is not a desire to see God glorified. A pure heart is a heart that has trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, has recognized its own moral failing, and understood that there is, there is justice that is required. A pure heart recognizes that there is nothing that can be done to make itself right with God the pure heart surrenders and stops trying to make itself right with God. The pure heart looks to Jesus for the cleansing that Jesus provides through what he has done on the cross. If I could put it this way, the pure heart is a heart that is not striving in its own power or seeking its own glory. The pure heart is the heart that hopes in Jesus for all and is seeking the glory and the exaltation of Christ above all. Any action that is undertaken from a passion to see Jesus' name lifted high and has a, a will that is exercised towards certain activities to ensure that Jesus' name is lifted high, that pure heart is engaging in loving behavior. But how can we make sure that Jesus' name is really being lifted high. You see, 
from day to day, we encounter all kinds of different ethical situations and scenarios. We find ourselves having to make all types of decisions from whether or not to buy a certain house, whether or not to engage in a certain type of economic activity, whether to take this job, whether to spend time with that friend, whether or not to engage in this hobby or that activity. And all of these decisions, based on the motivation of the heart, could be right or they could be wrong. And one of the things that we need, one of the instruments that God has given us to help us to understand the motivations of our heart and whether or not our actions are good or bad is our conscience. It's our conscience. The next thing that Paul says here is that love, biblical love, it spring, he says, first off, it springs from a pure heart. But the second thing is, it springs from a good conscience. That's an important word to consider, good. Normally, when you and I talk about conscience, we talk about it in terms of whether or not it's clear or whether or not it's clean. In other words, when we think of our conscience, we have this idea that we have, and it's not a wrong idea, we have this idea that there's almost like a little angel sitting on one shoulder, and there's a little sort of devil sitting on the other shoulder, and they're both whispering to us, and the angel is saying, no, no, don't do that bad deed, do that good deed. And then we have the devil whispering to us, oh, but it would be so easy for you just to steal and take it. It would save you time and money and you could quickly get something which doesn't belong to you. And we're kind of going back and forth. And then we decide, for example, to do the bad deed, whatever that might be. And immediately the little devil on this shoulder says, yay, he did it. And then he goes really quiet. And the angel on this shoulder is saying, oh, I'm so disappointed in you. You're a bad person. You did bad things. That's the idea of conscience here. It's that feeling we feel leading up to the engaging of a certain activity. And it's also that feeling we feel after we've done that certain activity. Whether that activity was good or bad, our conscience will tell us beforehand, if we're slow enough to listen to it, if we slow down and we consider what it might be saying to us, our conscience will speak to us. And after we do the activity, whether it was good or bad, our conscience will still speak to us about whether it was good or bad. Now, this is an important thing to consider because I'm going to make to you a suggestion today, and this is something you need to hear very carefully. Your conscience is not infallible. Your conscience is not without making mistakes. It is not, as we would say, inerrant. Only the Word of God is inerrant. Only the Word of God is infallible. Your conscience is something that God has given to you, but something I'm going to say to you here in just a few minutes is that your conscience must be calibrated by Scripture. Like any instrument, it needs tweaking and fine-tuning. I want to throw a couple of Scriptures at you. Again, uh, don't flip, just listen. I'll give you a definition of conscience. After carefully surveying the New Testament, conscience is your consciousness of what you believe to be right and wrong. Okay? Now, what does the conscience do? First off, the conscience bears witness to the truth and thereby can either reassure or condemn us with guilt, or it can reassure us and, and, and encourage us that our actions were right, 
based upon our knowledge of what is right and wrong. First off, let us talk about condemning. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, the Apostle Paul, again, talking about unbelievers, he makes the statement that they, that is unbelievers, show that the work of the law, that is God's moral law, is written where on their hearts, they know it instinctively, and he goes on to say, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So there the Apostle Paul, again, talking about the fact that all of humanity is aware of sin and is this intuitive nature of what is right and wrong, he is saying that that is given to them by God, that it is written on their hearts. They know God's moral law. They know what is right. They know what is wrong. And based on their actions, then Paul goes a step further and says that their conscience begins to present conflicting thoughts to their mind, sometimes accusing them, saying, man, you're a bad person for telling that lie. Or man, you're a bad person for cheating on that exam. Or, man, you're a bad person for stealing that that thing from work. Or it will begin to reassure them. You're not such a bad guy. You're not perfect, but what you did when you undertook that particular action, that's okay. And so your conscience will start to speak to you. Now, it can condemn you. It can also reassure you. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome, He makes this really incredible statement. It's a statement which I think everyone would like to make, but which I think most of us, if we're being brutally honest with ourselves, we would never make. He's talking about wishing for the salvation of his fellow Jews who are not believers, who are still trapped in their Judaism, and they have not trusted in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And he makes this statement. He says, I wish that I would be cursed and going to hell if it somehow meant that my fellow Jews could be going to heaven. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I love you guys, okay? As your pastor, I care deeply for you. But if I were to say that statement to you, my conscience would be bothering me. I love you, but I'm pretty sure I'm not going to trade my salvation for yours. And so when Paul makes that statement, we have to be skeptical, Isn't that hyperbole? Aren't you kind of overstating the case? Aren't you just exaggerating just a little bit, Paul? And he knows that's what his readers are thinking. So listen to what he says. Romans chapter 9, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Wow. What a statement to be made. And he says, just in case you were wondering, I know this is an incredible statement and my conscience is bearing witness that I really mean it. What a statement. All of this speaks to the fact that our conscience is bearing witness to us day by day and the things that we say and the actions that we do. Are they good? Are they bad? Something else that your conscience can do. It can determine your moral freedom in relation to to the freedom, the moral freedom of those around you. So that's an interesting statement. What are you getting at, Pastor? You may know that a certain action is morally okay, but you might be hanging out with other Baptists or other Christians who might think that a certain moral action is not okay. 
And if you sense that there is some disagreement about the moral propriety of a particular action, your conscience will start to speak to you, if it's a good conscience, about refraining from undertaking certain actions, not because there's necessarily anything wrong with the action, but for respect of the one who is with you. The example we have from the New Testament in particular is this idea of eating meat, which has been sacrificed to idols. Not really a big deal today. I mean, as we go home to eat turkey, I'm pretty sure none of us went to a butcher's shop in which the man incanted certain rituals over it and prayed to some pagan deity before he he killed that turkey in order to sell it to you. This isn't something that you and I face today, but it is something that they absolutely did face back in the first century. And so the moral dilemma was this. Is it right, is it God-honoring to eat meat or food that in its preparation certain other false gods, pagan deities, were invoked in the preparation of that meat? Some Christians said, it doesn't matter. They're fake gods. They don't, they're not even real. Who cares? And other Christians said, oh, I don't know. This could be a problem. I don't want my God, the true God, to be jealous because somehow I might be worshiping these other gods. So this is the moral dilemma that Paul is addressing. When your conscience begins to tweak you about doing something that could offend the conscience of others, you understand that that is an activity that is clearly spelled out in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, 28 to 29. If someone says to you, this meat has been offered and sacrificed, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Paul clarifies, I do not mean your conscience, but his. Why should my liberty be, ter- be determined by someone else's conscience? And he goes on to say, we should not use our freedom to harm our brother. Okay? So there, conscience is saying, it's fine, eat the meat. It doesn't matter. But if the person sitting across from you, if their conscience is bothered, you have to be sensitive to that. Implicitly, what the scriptures are teaching is that there must be within our church here at First Baptist Church a great regard for conscience. For us to walk around and say to each other, oh, I'm just going to do it anyway. I don't care what you guys think. That's a violation of the scriptures. That does not take into consideration the biblical command to love. Hear me carefully. Whatever it is you're proposing to do, whenever we come to a business meeting or whenever we're discussing starting a ministry or doing something in the community, you're entitled to your opinions, but you must, for the sake of love, have regard for the concerns of those around you, particularly if they say, I don't know, my conscience is a little bit uneasy about this. The ministry that you want to start is probably perfectly valid, but those concerns must be considered. And as a church, we have an obligation to bear with those who may have a weaker conscience in order to ascertain whether or not our conscience is truly good. Here's the rub. What you and I may not have any problem with doing whatsoever, we might actually need to start having a problem with doing it. This is where Paul is moving. The conscience can be wrong, and it must be recalibrated by the truth of God's word. In Romans chapter 14, 22 to 23, Paul says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever he does, for whatever 
does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, we have an example from the scriptures of the Apostle Paul being convicted, uh, beg your pardon, the Apostle Peter being convicted that eating certain foods was wrong according to God's law. But it really wasn't wrong. And here's where it gets really important for us to consider. The Apostle Peter had it in his mind that there were certain foods, certain things he could not enjoy because it would violate God's law. But the problem is if you hold strictly to those things, you will be limiting your ability to associate with people who do eat those things. In particular, there's a Roman centurion who worships God, who gives alms to the poor. And God has determined that this Roman centurion needs to be saved, fellow by the name of Cornelius. Now, Jews have major issues hanging out with Gentiles, not least of which is the, what the Jews consider to be egregious food practices, the way that they prepare their meals. And so God comes to Peter in a vision. This is recorded for us in Acts chapter 10. And he makes, Peter has this vision of a sheep being let down from heaven. And uh, in this sheet are snakes, and it says every vile creature. And then God says to Peter, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's response back to God in, in verse uh, 14, it says, Never, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And again, God says, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And again, Peter's like, eh. And then God says, he makes this statement, uh, do not call common or unclean. What I, have, what I call holy. And from there, Peter is recognizing of the fact that he really should be willing to embrace these things, to be nearer to the Gentiles. And so then the vision goes forward. He goes and he, the vision ends. He goes to Cornelius' house. He brings Cornelius to faith. He preaches the gospel. And later on, he has to give an account to himself. In that same chapter, the Jews come to him. They say, hey, you went and you hung out with Gentiles. You're a bad person. See, their conscience is starting to kick into overdrive. And Peter begins to explain it to them. Their statement was, you have violated God's word by doing what God has expressly said in the Old Testament you ought not to do. And Peter's statement is, no, I had this vision. I was told to go. I was told to do this. God specifically instructed me. And then he adds to that the testimony of what happens. After having gone and after having preached the gospel, he says the Holy Spirit fell on them. They received the same spiritual gifts, same spiritual blessing that everyone else who had been a believer had received. And he makes the statement, who was I to stand in the way? Specifically, he says, if God has given the same gift to the Gentiles, who was I to stand in the way? And of course, then everybody hears this testimony and they say, you're right. And they gave glory to God. So we see here an instance in which Peter's conscience has to be adjusted and recalibrated by Scripture. Now, I make that statement, and here's where things get dicey. Because I know somebody's going to now pose this question. Well, okay, so we can eat unclean foods to be near to Gentiles. Can we go to strip clubs? 
to be near to people who don't know the Lord? Well, there's no doubt being in a strip club will bring you nearer to people who don't know the Lord. That is a certainty. However, what does the Word of God say about our participation in certain works of darkness? This is where we have to step back and we say, okay, yes, we have this instance in which with regards to the eating of certain foods, God commanded that that wasn't to be observed anymore. But what does God say about pornography and looking upon naked women and this sort of thing? And we find that whereas God has, in the New Testament, relaxed certain requirements around food observance and food preparation and the rituals that are involved in the cooking and the preparing of food, we find no such relaxation of standards as regards to sexual purity and holiness in that regard. And so this is the nature of conscience. For you and I to calibrate our conscience perfectly we can look at it and we can come up with a lot of seemingly good objections and you might even be capable of saying, my conscience doesn't bother me when I go to the strip club. But at the end of the day, your conscience isn't that which we are to follow. In fact, your conscience can be flawed. What we are to follow is the word of God. You'll notice that the term Paul uses here to talk about conscience, he says it is the good conscience. This is a qualitative statement. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul has said, you know, he, that Jesus gives us a clean conscience, or Jesus gives us a clear conscience. And this has to do with our conscience potentially uh, condemning us for past behaviors, for sins and crimes that we have done wrong. And we know that when we come to Christ and we ask his forgiveness by the blood of Christ, we are forgiven. And that forgiveness helps to silence the voice of our guilty conscience. However, that's not what Paul is talking about in this particular passage. He uses the statement, good conscience. This is a qualitative statement, meaning it doesn't matter whether your conscience is clear or clean, although that is definitely an idea that is presented to us in the scriptures. Paul's statement is, you are not loving the way God would have you to love unless you are loving in accordance with a good conscience, which means knowledge of the scriptures knowing what the Bible commands, knowing the ethical principles that are laid out for us in God's word, knowing those things and honoring those things are foundational to being capable of loving the way God would have us to love. And all of this leads us to the third category that Paul addresses. He says, and a sincere faith. Time is getting away from us this morning, so I will keep this short. But essentially what Paul is saying here is that the hope that you have in God, the hope that you show to the world when you come here to First Baptist Church on a Sunday morning and worship God, that hope needs to be the same kind of hope that you have when you're at that hotel, on that business trip, when you're walking down the street And that pretty girl comes up to you and starts asking you for directions when you're alone with your cell phone and you're tempted to pull up certain websites. What Paul is saying there is love, biblical love, comes from a sincere faith. 
The opposite of sincere would be hypocrisy. Where what you do in one particular setting is not the same thing that you would do in another setting. And what Paul is saying is that real love requires that you be the same every single day of the week. Real love is, it flows out of a heart that says, I know what it is that God wants me to be. I know what it is that God has called me to be. And I'm going to strive to be that person every day, regardless of where I am or who I'm with. My hope in Christ, my confidence in Jesus, my certainty that he has forgiven me of my sins and that he can also save me from my sins and keep me from my sinning has to be that same certainty I have here on Sunday as it is all throughout the week. If we love, we have to love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And you're hearing all this and you're seeing me throw out all these scripture verses out there and you're thinking to yourself, how in the world can I make sure I've got a good calibrated conscience? How in the world can I be encouraged to having a sincere faith? And what certainty can I possibly possess to make sure I've got the pure heart? And you notice within the context, Paul is saying to Timothy, you stay at Ephesus Because you need to keep certain teachers from teaching stuff that leads to speculation. And you teach the good stuff, the stuff that leads to love. So the question that you're asking is, how can I make sure? How can I have certainty regarding the purity of my heart, regarding the goodness of my conscience, regarding the sincerity of my faith? The the context of the passage is clear. That the primary means that God is using in order to keep your heart healthy is the means of correct biblical preaching and teaching. That's, on the flip side of the equation, that's one of the reasons why God, why Paul is telling Timothy, why God speaking through Paul is telling us today, we have to be careful regarding who preaches and who teaches in the church because the wrong teaching leads to the wrong thinking, the wrong kind of conscience. It leads to the wrong kind of behavior. Ultimately, it leads to the shipwreck of our faith. And indeed, Paul is going to talk about that later in this same chapter. We have to have good preaching. We have to have biblical preaching. That's what we have to have. This last week, I was um, watching the news, and on ABC News Tonight, I encountered the story of a woman, Lacey Tiara Wilcox, whose two-year-old daughter uh, came down with bacterial meningitis. And unfortunately, her daughter, two-year-old toddler, tragically died. And as her daughter died, the surgeons and the doctors who had been trying to save her life came to Lacey and they said, you know, your daughter has passed. There's no brain activity. We're, we're confident that she is gone. And immediately, Lacey broke down, grieving and crying for the death of her child. And she recounts in, in her story that it was very jarring, the next question that they asked. They said to her, Your daughter's heart is healthy. 
And there's a little boy, a two-year-old, that is a perfect match. Although your daughter has passed, she can still save the life of another. And so confronted with that, the reality that your child is gone, Lacey made the decision to have her child's heart taken and put into another little baby boy, two-year-old toddler boy. A couple years went past, and she met this little boy. And this is the story that ABC News told this last week. Mason Parkins. They had a reunion of sorts, a gathering of sorts between her family, the Wilcox family, and the Parkins family, and they got together and they met this little boy who is healthy, who is playing, who is rambunctious, who is running around and living life because he has a heart, because he had the gift of life given to him, tragically through the death of Lacey's daughter. And the thing that gripped me was that on the story, Lacey got down and she put on a a stethoscope. And she put the piece up to Mason's chest and began to listen. And inside of Mason's chest, she heard the heart beating of her own daughter. And she made this statement. She said, we had so many different emotions running through us. She, she went on to tell about the fact that there was a reminder of this intense grief, this intense pain, but at the same time, this unspeakable joy that through their loss, others could be saved. She says, we had so many different emotions running through us. She says, we were anxious to meet Mason in person. Just from photos and videos, we've always known that her daughter's name was Aaliyah. We've always known that he had Aaliyah's energy. He has her spunk now as well. And she's saying that because of the heart that Mason received, she can tell he's got a little extra spring in his step. First Baptist Church, listen to me very carefully. As you're thinking about the way that you love, I want you to understand that there was another child that died in order that his heart could be transplanted into yours. As we encounter the story of Lacey Wilcox, I want you to understand that that is your story. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, And he crucified him and saw to it that his own son was brutally murdered in order that his heart, his spirit, could be put into you. The question that I want to leave you with as we prepare for communion this morning is this. Is that heart healthy? And are you being good to that heart in the way that you love? Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that as we bring this time of teaching to an end, we pray, God, that we would love in a way that is consistent with your word. We pray, God, that we would love in a way that first stems from having a personal relationship with you and having a pure heart. God, we also pray that your word would day by day, week by week, particularly here in the gathering of your people to worship you week in and week out, we pray, God, that your word would calibrate our consciences, that we would have good consciences, and we also pray, God, that we would be a sincere people with a sincere faith. 
Lord, we know that you want to do all those things in us in order to keep the new heart that you have given us healthy. We know, God, that we are saved by faith in your Son, but we also know, Lord, that there are steps we are called to undertake in order to make sure we're living the most vibrant and vital Christian life that we can possibly live. And so if there are any who are gathered here today, Lord, who know whose consciences even now are perhaps accusing them, we pray, God, that you would speak to them and encourage them to begin taking those steps of healthiness. Lord, we pray you would work and have your way among us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are preparing now.